Se divierta. Buenos días, señorita Clara. Parece cansada. Ay, joder, César. Tú sí que sabes tratar a una mujer, ¿eh? Siempre con esa sonrisita. <risa> todo bien, todo genial. Clara en el ascensor. ¿Qué le has dicho? ¿Te preocupa? ¿No será que ya no sabe nada? Tú sabes que nunca había llegado tan lejos con nadie. Por primera vez en mi vida tenía una razón para vivir. Tengo referencias tuyas. Parece que no duras mucho en los trabajos, ¿no? El tarado es el de los mensajes. Sigue molestándola. ¿Y tú cómo sabes eso? Tengo entendido que usted tiene la llave de todos los apartamentos. Sí, como conserje tenía acceso al llavero. ¿Me pasa algo? Las cosas se están complicando. Creo que ha llegado el momento de empezar en serio. Allá vamos, Clara. Welcome to the Nashy Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we're here for our spooky... Yes. Well, okay. So the film is actually a thriller that we're covering yeah. this time around. It's not really like a creepy monster thing mm-hmm. or anything that's kind of Halloween-themed. Yeah. There are no jack-o'-lanterns. It's right. not that time right. of year in the movie. Nothing like that. But in it's yeah. it's a thriller. And it's in its own horrifying. Yeah, I was going to say, in its own way, it has concepts that might be more horrifying than your typical... Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. spooky it's, film. It's a, there's a, who, yeah. yes. Imagine a Spanish version of a cross between a taxi driver mm. and Henry Port- Portrait of a Serial Killer, and without the murders, right? Yeah, but with a lot more unnerving shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, mm. tonight's movie is Sleep Tight from 2011. Which may make it the most recent movie that we have ever covered. I think so. And, of course, you know, yes, we're calling it to be on Nashi, and there are no real Nashi connections in this. But every now and then we like to take a spin into what's happening in new Spanish cinema, what's going on. And assuming that most of these people turning out new Spanish horror cinema grew up on Mr. Nashi's stuff and uh, very likely are influenced by him and fans of his. So 
And, and it, no doubt, with you know, there being tendrils, threads, roots, all mm-hmm. the way back to the golden age of Spanish horror, one way or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be honest, the the filmmakers behind this particular movie, Sleep Tight, mm-hmm. is that the, they they have made. They've made their own mark. Yes, they have. In a, in a, in a massive way in the past uh, like mm-hmm. 20, 21 years, maybe even closer mm-hmm. to 25 when you start thinking about it. And they've done impressive work, some mm-hmm. really good movies. And it is kind of weird in a way that we start talking about this filmmaker, this particular director's work with this movie, which is more of a thriller, when he's definitely done some movies that are much more in the horror realm. Absolutely, yeah. He's done uh, some some kind of zombie movies. He's done uh, a go- at least one ghost, ghost movie. Story, yeah. He's done a Ramsey Campbell uh, mm-hmm. adaptation yeah. called The Nameless that I think is absolutely one of the best Very well Spanish done. horror films of the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, we just wanted to let you know that, yes, it is October, and we mm-hmm. are uh, mm-hmm. we're gearing up watching... <clears throat> lots and lots of horror movies. I don't know why. Yeah, yeah. Uh, October, yeah. October would be that time of year, I guess. I, I guess that's what happens. Well, I kicked my viewing off with the Ghost and Mister Chicken. It's an old favorite. <laughs> old favorite that I just love that one. So, uh, well, it is. It, well, tell me something. Would that be? Um, I mean, I guess that would be probably in your top ten favorite horror comedies. But like, what would be your favorite horror comedy? Uh, favorite horror comedy would be uh, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, uh, yeah. With a with probably Young Frankenstein a very close second. Yeah, you know, um, but uh, but yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, definitely, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein would have to be the the number one. But you're right, Ghost of Mr. Chicken would certainly be in a top ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, yeah. It's, one of, it's one of those movies that I went. I remember loving as a kid, mm-hmm. and then going through a period in my twenties where I, well, my teens and twenties, where I thought. With that, you know, without really thinking about it and without rewatching it, I was like, yeah. "Oh, I should really be embarrassed to have enjoyed that movie." And then, as an adult, rewatching it and realizing, "No, this is just fucking funny." Yeah, <laughs> this, yeah. Is just, yeah. this is just a funny. Movie. And and you know, always just blown away by what an incredible physical comedian Don Knotts was. You know, but yeah. the scene that really stood out to me this time, as many times I've seen it, I really just found myself fascinated by the scene where he's trying to deliver the speech to the. In the Chamber of Commerce picnic yes. is just an amazing physical performance of nervousness. The way yeah. he is just shake his hands just through that, you know, took that you know, that that the way he projects that and does it so funny but also so realistically and really painfully too. I mean you really yes. just feel so bad for this guy, but he's the way he's just literally vibrating with terror is just uh, it's 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 just an amazing scene. The number of incredibly funny scenes in that movie that all crescendo down mm. down the line and grow and grow yeah. and get yeah. funnier and funnier because with each mm-hmm. scene of amusement or, mm-hmm. or fear or uh, uh, plot reveals, mm-hmm. it just becomes more and more knowing more and more about the characters yeah. and that that mm-hmm. crazy little town is just packed mm-hmm. full of lunatic <laughs> oh, characters. Yeah. yeah, not you know not just the mm-hmm. absolutely terrif- absolutely terrified character that Don Knotts plays, but just all of them, mm-hmm. and uh, it be- it becomes this uh, this wonderful type of story that I, I really do love on screen that really I think they 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 rarely make them I don't I think they rarely made them back then yeah right but wh- where you have the it's small town Americana mm-hmm. wrapped up with that that those tendrils of mm-hmm. complete weirdness mm-hmm. where and, and it's just that kind of stuff that you're 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 aware of in a small town where the weird things that are in the small town, yeah. everybody knows about, and so they're just part of the normalcy <laughs> sure, right. of that place. Yeah. It's just everybody's quirk, you know. Well, it's like Harvey, another one of my favorite comedies. Yeah, is just you know that everybody in the town knows about Harvey and accepts Harvey and even yeah. acknowledges 
Harvey, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. at this point, they've known him for so long. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's and that's one of the things I love is that all of these weird characters, all these quirky, weird ass characters, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the group the group of old, old, oh, old yeah, middle aged women who are the spiritualists, spiritualists, spiritualists yeah. <laughs> who uh, who everybody knows who they are. Everybody, yeah. You know, everybody thinks pretty much the same thing, which is yeah, just they're harmless. Mm. Let them let them do whatever they're going to do. It doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it keeps them happy. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> but anybody from the outside, which is yeah. of course what we are watching the movie, anyone yeah. from the outside just looks at this and goes, my God, these people are insane. (laughs) Yes, yes, they are. But their insanity is well within the bounds that this town has set for the bounds of crazy. Everything's Mm. fine right here. (laughs) So yeah, I absolutely love that. I I am trying to catch up on uh, some uh, unseen recent horror movies uh, from the past few years that I've just not gotten around to. Uh, One of them, uh, I'd not not known... (laughs) how divisive this particular film was until uh, after I watched it. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a film that was produced for Netflix called The Open House. Hmm. Uh, I think it's from, yeah, it's from uh, two years ago. So it was 2018. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remember at, around the time that it that it debuted on Netflix, I remember seeing a lot of people talking about that they had watched it, but I, don't, I didn't remember at all what people may or may not have said. So I watched the movie and uh, overall, it's 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 a it's a pretty good little movie. It's not particularly great. It's 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 well directed. It's well mm-hmm. acted. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's interesting all the way through. And then it uh, really co- it really has a surprising ending. Hmm. Uh, and I'll just say that uh, for for those in the know, let's just say it was a very seventies ending. Yeah, let's I put it you. that way. I got you. Which okay. is not exactly at all what the movie has been leading you mm-hmm. to think mm-hmm. this film is going to be. Uh, but boy, it hmm. definitely goes in that direction. And I was really kind of stunned by it. And it made me, <laughs> let's put it this way, on the one to 10 scale, I was thinking, this is a six. This is about a six. It's, it's good, but it's not great. It's not particularly memorable. Mm-hmm. It's not all that, you know, it's, it's well done. It's just not, you know, it's not really doing anything special for me. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, with that ending, I was like, man, that might be worth a seven right there. <laughs> that, yeah, that ending, yeah, yeah. That, the balls of the ending yeah. there, that's like, that's pretty impressive. I don't cool. know. Cool. But well, the next, it, go ahead. Well, well then I, then I, uh, when I was uh, looking up just to check on uh, where I might have seen some of the actors and other things, uh-huh. and I ran across a few uh, reviews or uh, let's call them opinion pieces talking about this movie back from when it came out a couple of years ago and people I read one in particular where this dude seemed completely offended uh-huh. because the movie's ending it, it, <laughs> there's all these there's all these possibilities and, and then it's all this and, and then the, 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 you know some of them are red herrings but then the ending just it just and I was just like holy fuck this idiot how old is this moron I mean, this is a published piece uh, on an actual website. This isn't a blog. <laughs> this is someone who's being, I'm assuming, being paid to write this. And it's like, I just want to say, are you 20? Mm-hmm. Are you 22? Mm-hmm. Have you never seen a movie with a downbeat ending? Yeah. You do realize that the way they get you, uh, you know, punched right in the gut is mm-hmm. they don't let you know that they're going to do that yeah. to you. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a very 70s thing to do, you know. Yeah. 70, yeah. I would say, I, like I say, I thought it was pretty good. And the ending made me kind of respect mm-hmm. it a little mm-hmm. bit more than yeah. otherwise because there are, there's definitely a killer in the movie. And there comes a point at which, very late in the film, that the characters living in this particular house become aware that mm-hmm. there has to be that there's definitely a killer. Uh-huh. And the movie has kind of led you down the garden path that somebody that you've seen will be the killer. Mm-hmm. 
but they 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 play a trick on you. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to spell out any yeah. more than that because it's just really impressive what they've done. Cool. And uh, it's it's the best part. It's the best part of the movie, and it's the part of the movie that apparently just made people go, "Oh God damn it!" <laughs> and, I mean, this guy was railing against Netflix for spending money to have this produced. I mean, like having a shit fit yeah. that this movie was made. <laughs> Just like this, this dude's clueless yeah, opinion piece on yeah, this movie yeah. actually entertained me more than the movie did, <laughs> and I kind of enjoyed the That's movie. Awesome. Well, speaking of Netflix, the, my next film, I actually, I've just started it. Very, I would say, really just started. I mean, I'm literally like 10, 15 minutes into it, but it seemed like it. It's a Spanish film. It's a Spanish horror film uh, that got really good reviews, and seems like it's won some awards now. But it's called Veronica. Oh, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, it's on Netflix, and so it. Uh, uh, but it's uh, just. Oh, wait a minute. Yes, I have. A few years ago, the thriller about the, the schoolgirl. Yeah, where they had the weeds. They get to do the yes, seance, the, the Ouija, Ouija board. board. Yeah, so like yes, I said, and so far it looks is. pretty good. I'm just about 10, 15 minutes into it, but looking forward I to finishing that it. So. Several years ago, I do recommend that movie. Cool. Yeah, cool. that's a good little movie. You're right. I forgot about that movie until you brought it up. But yeah, that's a, that's a little Spanish. Spanish horror gem. Actually, I'm about to watch. I watched the first few minutes of another Spanish thriller mm-hmm. called The Invisible Guest. Oh, okay. And it's not a horror. It's not a horror movie. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a thriller from a, from very recent. I think it's in the past mm-hmm. couple of years. Uh-huh. And I'm gonna I plan to finish it here in the next uh, day or two when I've got the freaking time. Hmm. And uh, uh, like I say, it's very, definitely a thriller. Hmm. Uh, and I'm I'm very curious to see where this goes. Uh, it's definitely a uh, hunt for a murderer. Cool. And uh, it's it's looking very good. It's like I, I I'm beginning to realize there's just all these little hidden nooks mm. and crannies where you can find these yeah. things, and it's really yeah. Really paying off in droves sometimes. Cool. So, but other than that, I'm going back and I'm rewatching a few choice pieces of classic cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, finally showed Beth. I didn't know she hadn't seen this. I showed her The Changeling. Oh, man. I hadn't seen from that. From 1980, wow, nice. the George C. Scott film. Always fun to show somebody that for the first time. Yep, yep. I'd forgotten just how masterful a director Peter Medak is. Mm. and Or was, I should say. Right, sure. And, um, wow. What a, what a great film. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it just is. so freaking well done yeah and uh the extras on the disc i think it's a severin blu-ray yeah i've got uh, it but i haven't dug into it, it was, yet it but. was it was based on a real incident it was based on a real thing i think i had heard that before i think I somewhere i've heard that. that but i believe i had heard that yeah but but yeah and so there's a, a lot of information on there about the actual incident it was based on it was, incident it was based on and mm-hmm. it's kind of creepy when mm-hmm. you have this guy who uh who specializes in writing about this kind of stuff relating all you know the, the facts and the mm. actual case that they wow. used as a template for the film and you're just like wow they really kind of took like so many I mean there's mm. say there's 10 points of information mm. about a story and this film took like mm. eight yeah <laughs> eight directly from re- reality and you're just like oh my god <laughs> that's a little closer than they probably should have gone but uh, showed her, showed her the, showed her the Changeling. Uh, we rewatched uh, Mask of the Red Death. Actually, with that new Blu-ray, we watched the slightly longer. Oh, yeah, kind of it, right, right, right. Uh, which, which was damned interesting. Love Mask of the Red Death, of course. Oh, Corman, yeah. possibly the best of the Corman Poe films. Yeah, I, I mean, my favorite, my favorite is Pit and the Pendulum. Uh, but I love, uh, I love, I mean, I love them all. You know, yeah. it's, it's like visually, I mean, visually, Mask of the Red, Red Death might be the best of all of them. But yeah, Pit and the Pendulum is the one my own. That's that's that actually. If I were ever to be brave enough to attempt a favorite horror films of all time list, I mean, Pit the Pendulum could very well end up in my top 10. It would definitely be in my probably top 15. Yeah, we watched that one uh, a couple of weeks ago yeah. as well. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was actually the first of the Corman Post. We're planning to watch a lot of uh, Vincent Price movies this October. Yeah. And I got we got started in September, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> uh, but also, uh, 
showed her the uh, the remake from 1988 of The Blob, which she had mm-hmm. never seen. Yeah. And I, I, really, I mean, like I say, there were three great remakes made in the mm-hmm. 80s. Mm-hmm. The Thing, The Fly, and The Blob. I remember seeing The Blob in the theater when it came out and not expecting, you know, just going in and just, you know, being having the usual yep. just kind of expectations for a, a remake and uh, just being so impressed by how much I enjoyed it, how good it is. I had forgotten that uh, how how cleverly that was well, it's a good script I mean, yeah it is Fra- uh, uh, frank um oh, the guy who did the, the shawshank redemption uh, Three Mile, uh, uh, frank darabont darabont yes thank you. co-wrote the script and uh one of the things that the script does that i think is just absolutely brilliant is it completely inverts what you're expecting as mm-hmm. a film watcher yeah, by yep. doing in a couple of ways my favorite being that you're introduced to two male characters really kind of three mm-hmm. Uh, one's a bit of a sleaze, and then there's one who's clearly a good guy, and one who's on a motorcycle and with you know a mullet mm-hmm. and very very much clearly co- the bad boy. Clearly the bad boy, and then the movie plays uh, straight you know, straight with you, but the the person who you think is going to be killed early on mm-hmm. isn't. Yeah, and so the 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 good guy actually turns out. In other words, both of them turn out to be good guys. Yeah. It's just that yeah. you know there's this veneer of uh, anti-establishment. Kind of sentiment that is, you know, on the the bike, the motorcycle riding guy, mm-hmm. mullet wearing dude, yeah. played by Matt Dillon, or not Matt Dillon, His Kevin brother. Dillon, yeah. Kevin mm-hmm. Dillon. Mm-hmm. And so the movie starts off with what you think is going to happen with a couple yeah. of characters, and it's like, hey, you know, one character doesn't make it past Act One, yeah, yeah, in a very gruesome, yeah, gruesome yeah. way. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it's just it's a it's a it's a clever film, and I and I do really like the uh, the, the 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 really brilliant inversion of changing. The uh, the origin of the blob itself, too, yeah. which was in, which was which was very smart, mm-hmm. very well done, yeah, and just so much to like about it. But yep. uh, oh oh, and I also uh, sat down and finally watched the Blu-ray of Dear Dead Delilah. Oh okay. The uh, the movie written and directed by John Ferris, which is the only film. He, John Ferris is a was a horror novelist. Right. Still is a yeah, horror novelist. I read a couple of his novels. Yeah, really good horror novelist. Um, Southern Southern man, and he made Dear Dead Delilah. Uh, he had dabbled. There's a great interview on the Blu-ray as well where he talks about this. Where he he had dabbled. He'd been, written some screenplays here and there. And of course, his film, his his novel, The Fury, was turned into mm-hmm. a movie by Brian De Palma sure was, later yeah. in the '70s. Well, Dear Dead Delilah, he wrote and ended up directing here in Nashville, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was shot up here in Nashville. Oh. And actually, uh, Beth and I were were trying to we were doing okay. a lot of googling trying to figure out if the, yeah. if the places where this was shot were uh, actually still around right. in, in the in the, you know looking the way they did you know uh-huh. this, was, this would have been like 45 46 7 years ago yeah but uh, we couldn't find out enough mm-hmm. specific information and couldn't piece enough together from what Mr. Ferris said about mm-hmm. uh, different things uh, and the interview on the disc but uh, Dear Dead the Lila is pretty interesting I mean it's a hell of a cast have you ever seen it I've not. I've heard of it for years. Ag- I've never Agnes, seen it though. Agnes Moorhead, yeah, yeah. Michael Ansara, mm-hmm. uh, Will Gear. I mean, it's great cast. It's, yeah. it's a hell. It's it's and it's a it's a really great script. And it's the the film's major flaw is pretty obvious, which is if he'd had a more experienced director, mm-hmm. it would be a better film. But it's mm-hmm. still a pretty good movie. Cool. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, enough about what we've been watching, people. What have you been watching? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let us know. I know yeah. a lot of people out there have been. <laughs> The past two months, apparently, have been watching a lot of Paul Nashie films uh, and posting about it. I've seen it on Facebook and on mm-hmm. various other pieces of social, social media where people are talking about yeah. sitting down and watching the Blu-ray of a particular Paul Nashie film. And it's kind of gratifying. It is. 
because whenever it's one that we've done a commentary for, I'll just I'll jump in and go, hey, then listen to the commentary. <laughs> and I don't know if people are taking the time to watch yeah, the film right. twice, but yeah. Yeah. nevertheless, mm-hmm. uh, it's really it's really nice to have people out there, you know, going, ah, yeah, I'm going to sit down at night and finally watch Inquisition. Mm-hmm. I'm like. Well, that was our first commentary, so I don't know how good that is. Because <laughs> I can't make myself go back and be, listen to be it. Be kind, be kind. That really, be, be as nice as possible. <laughs> but uh, we would like to say, we can't tell you exactly what it is, but there is a new commentary track mm. on the horizon mm. from Troy and myself, from uh, people we've worked with before. Mm-hmm. That that should help a little. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that uh, we're very excited about. It's a film that uh, deserves its Blu-ray release, and I think that uh, there'll be more news down the when road. When the news well. drops, you will be happy. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, thank you. Whether you're happy about our audio commentary or not, you will be happy this film is coming out. This is true. This yeah. is true. But I guess that's really all we can say about this. I want to, I want everybody to understand that we do understand that uh, the year 2020 and uh, the <laughs> Halloween thereof is going to be difficult for all of us. Yeah, yeah. We're all going to be experiencing a mostly indoor Halloween this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Remember, that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, no. Staying indoors allows you to keep the zombies and boogers and haints outside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a good thing because, yeah. the, you know. Indoors can be made just as scary as outdoors. Uh, usually if they you are. Yeah. <laughs> usually they are. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be chased by a maniac yeah. in the woods. Yeah. You can be, you know, stalked in your home by a complete lunatic who's possibly mm-hmm. blind and wanting to mm-hmm. inseminate you. I'll tell you what, dude. If you're having trouble scaring yourself and you, you, you want quick thrills, just turn out the light, get a flashlight, shine it at the ceiling, and then toot your hand up over the light and bring it slowly down and you'll it will look like a giant hand is coming down to crush you so it's like instant instant thrills instant scares you've, you've thought a lot about this <laughs> you've thought I spent you, a lot of time indoors in the dark so I, yeah yeah that's okay well folks we're gonna take a break here I'm gonna uh further distance myself from Troy and then we will come back and we will talk for a little while about Sleep Tight from 2011. Aren't TV movies fun? You see all these familiar faces, but doing really unfamiliar things. And I think that that's really exciting. And I think that's something important to the history of film in general. Join Amanda. There's a lot going on in that scene that is unspoken between two men. So I'm just telling you, I think there was a little Brokeback Mountain. (laughs) Dan. I think Therese is a little bipolar. Her voice, it goes from this sort of sexy, sensuous voice to, Okay, Ramsey, get out of here. And eight. I love, you know, in like the late 70s, early 80s, the crazier a person got, the bigger their hair got. (laughs) As they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies. Mr. Hazelrick. On the made-for-TV mayhem show. This man came to see him. He never comes to see him at work. What kind of stories could he have to tell him? (laughs) Tales of his postal delivery. Hey, I'm so glad you could make it. Welcome to my little podcast here, Bill Watches Movies. I'm Bill Mize, I'm the host and creator, and I'll be helping you today. Now, we're a podcast that's a little different from the other ones out there. We start off with a rich and aromatic blend of B-movie weirdness. Then we fold in some Hollywood history and biography, and finally... At the end, we sprinkle just a bit of old-time radio ambiance for that finishing touch. 
Now we think that that unique combination will bring you an audio experience that you'll want to enjoy again and again. Each month, we'll serve up a story that will entertain you and bring a smile to your face. I do hope that you'll subscribe and try an episode. They're a wee bit naughty, but won't go directly to your waistline. Now, to learn even more, you can always go to our website, BillWatchesMovies.com, for show notes, blog posts, resources, and just general dorkitude. Now, I'm also on Twitter. Just search for Bill Watches Movies. I'm pretty easy to find, and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thanks again for checking us out. Relax, enjoy the music, and then enjoy the show. Sleep Tight from 2011, directed by Yame Balaguerro. And we'd just like to thank Mr. <laughs> Selena from Our Rises for Spain for helping me with the pronunciation of this man's uh, mm. name because I can never seem to get it right, and I think I only vaguely got it right. Then. Yeah, I'm sure even she's still probably face palming at this point and now hearing hearing that. But 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 she knows we're trying. You know, we we try. So. And I have so much respect for this filmmaker because, oh, yeah, yeah. as I've said, uh, this is it's kind of surprising that this would be the first time we talk about his filmmaking mm. career, mm-hmm. uh, at least for the podcast, because. Uh, I discovered his work back in 1999. He was involved in a... His, well, his feature-length film debut was a film called The Nameless, which is an adaptation of a Ramsey Campbell yeah. novel. Yeah. And uh, I, I saw the film, was thoroughly impressed by it. was just mm-hmm. stunned by how good it was. Even the, the English dub of it mm-hmm. was extraordinarily well mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. Very clearly, the movie was made with an eye toward being dubbed brilliantly into yeah. English as well as being yeah. good in Spanish as well. And the, uh, at the time, uh, people talked about both how good the film was and the fact that it was visually influenced by uh, Seven. Uh, mm-hmm. David Fincher's mm-hmm. film. And this is true, yeah. but uh, the film, the the, the film, two films are very different. One yeah. of the things that also impressed me is after seeing The Nameless, I went and uh, read the novel, and was surprised by how good an adaptation it was. Because as an adaptation, The Nameless did one of the smartest things I've ever seen, which is there's a supernatural element in the novel mm-hmm. and in the film. For the adaptation, they completely extracted the supernatural element out of the mm-hmm. story. Just yeah. pulled it right out and threw it away. Mm-hmm. And the movie works brilliantly without it. And sometimes it works brilliantly mm-hmm. simply because of extracting the supernatural element. It mm-hmm. was a genius move. And it immediately made me think that Mr. Balaguerro is a, a, a someone to watch. Mm-hmm. He's definitely someone to watch. And so... Uh, Three years later, he made the film Darkness, uh, Mm -hmm. which uh, was also very good and actually fairly similar in structure and storyline to The Nameless. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nameless is a little bit better. And then a couple years later, uh, he he did a a ghost story that starred uh, Callista Flockhart called Fragile, which Mm -hmm. was also extraordinarily good. Okay. And since then, he also uh, there was a, 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 br- a brief resurrection of the classic uh, Narciso Ibanez Cerador uh, TV series, Tales to Keep You Awake. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a resurrection of it in uh, in the uh, 2000s, and uh, I think there were like six like TV movies made okay. uh, as part of you know, it was kind of an anthology series. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did uh, an episode of that called To Let To Let. Okay. Which was also which was pretty good. It wasn't one of the best of the of the group, but it was good. And, but then uh, 
Uh, Balaguerro began work on the film that would uh, kind of break him worldwide. He co-directed Rec, mm-hmm. R-E-C, yeah. in 2007. Uh, his fourth, fourth theatrical film as a director. and uh, Probably his biggest hit, I think, still today. Probably still his biggest hit. And, of course, that's gone on. There have now been four movies in that series. I uh, I enjoy all four to a degree, especially the first two. I think they're brilliant. Mm-hmm. I've still just seen the first one. Uh, oh, I really? Seen, yeah, I want to see oh. all of them, but I've only seen the first one so far. Diminishing returns when you get to three and four. Mm-hmm. They take different tacks mm-hmm. and successful and not successful in certain ways. But I really think the first two are brilliant. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I know, Elena, you're listening and you despise the second one. But I absolutely, <laughs> absolutely love the second one. Sorry. <laughs> but I do. I do love it. Now, do you know anything about this film, Muse? Have you seen this? That he's His done? 2017 film, Muse, I have still not seen. No. Okay. And I, I, I need to see if I can find a way to see it. Mm-hmm. But no, I've not seen mm-hmm. it yet. So uh, he's a filmmaker that I'm always going to be curious about because, yeah. like I say, uh, not as many films as I wish over mm-hmm. the course of, you know, 21 years. Yeah. Um, but then again, I could say that about a lot, yeah. <laughs> a lot of filmmakers like Guillermo yeah. del Toro. I yeah. wish to God we had at least four or five more films from him. Kubrick. Yeah, I wish we had more Kubrick films. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a, there's a fine example. <laughs> yeah. Has, has a decade gone by? Do we, we get another Time one now, sir? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he does Barry Lyndon in 75. Mm-hmm. Then five years later, we get The Shining. Mm-hmm. Seven years later, we get Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And 11, was yeah. it 11 or 12 years least, after that, we yeah. get Eyes, eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> it's just like, Jesus yeah. Christ. I mean, yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. I love all those. And, I love and, them. And, yeah. But. Holy. Just wish there were more and more. We need them yeah, more yeah. Stanley. And, and of course, there's that there's that part of you also that, know, that, that, that wonders what it would have been like if he'd ever been able to film. Uh, because he was prepping and working for years on what became AI. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Spiel, I think Spielberg did a good job with it. Uh, to a degree, I still think that it's, yeah, it has, it's, I have problems it's, with AI. Hey, I yeah, I have a problem. Movie. I have the problems I have with AI are the problems I have with most Spielberg movies, sure. which is he doesn't know how to fucking end the thing. <laughs> yeah, and there's a part of me that there's a part of me that knows you know Kubrick knew how to end movies. Mm-hmm. He knew yeah. how to give you something mm-hmm. that even even if he pulled the rug out from under you or did something unexpected to you, you realized that you'd been you know, you'd yeah. been told a a, a a story. Yeah. And uh, Spielberg, man, there's just so many Spielberg films where you're just sitting there going, <laughs> okay, I don't think he thought this through as far as he needed to, or he he ended the movie, you know, 15 minutes after he should have, or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, I had that problem with it too, so yeah. yeah. But the first two thirds, I'm a big fan of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first two thirds, I kind of like. Yeah. But uh, with Sleep Tight... Uh, the director and his writer, who, who credit where credit's due, this is a mm. fantastic script. It is. This is very tight. This movie walks a tightrope. And as we've said, this is a thriller, not mm. really a horror movie. But be very clear, mm-hmm. this is a movie about a monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the monster is a character who is on screen 99% of the time. Yeah. There's very little of this movie that does not have the main character, Cesar. Mm-hmm front and center in the film. And the movie kind of tells you that's the way it's going to be in its opening Mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. Because we're introduced to this guy in a way that should really put us on his side. More so than just the natural identification that you're going to have with a main character of any story that you're watching in a film. Or even reading Mm -hmm. about it in a novel. Mm -hmm. Because we're introduced to him with him giving a bit of a voiceover telling you the, the core reason that he is the way he is, mm. which is that he for, he tells you he can never be happy. 
And we're introduced to this idea as he tells us this in voiceover by watching him standing on the roof of a building at the very edge of it, thinking about killing himself. Yeah. That's brilliant cinematic code for putting you on the side of this character. Because now you're not just kind of sympathetic toward him. You're kind of on his side automatically because he wants to kill himself. And he's sad. From there on, the movie is going to introduce you to more and more details about his life and how he kind of, shall we say, lives his life in response to his sadness and his inability to really be happy. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't do it in ways that I would consider at all healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nor nor are they engendered to... uh to uh, uh, keep you on his side or keep you sympathetic. <laughs> no, but it, it's strange how long this movie manages to walk that tightrope mm. of keeping you nominally on his side. Yeah, um, well, uh, the director would agree with you, too. I mean, he, he, when he's describing the character, you know, he, he, uh, he talks about one of the things that drew him to the character that he thinks fascinating about the character is what you're talking about, the, uh, the way that, that um, as he put it, you know, he said the way that you find yourself despite all the horrible things he does and the way he, and, and, and uh, how he goes about trying to deal with his problem that he says that you find yourself pulling for him. And uh, I don't really quite feel that that's the, what I see it is more of like he pulls you, he's an incredibly compelling character. He, yes. he fascinates and me fa- as a viewer. I never found myself pretty quickly on. I, I came to the conclusion of what you say, that he is a monster, you know, and yeah. I can't find myself pulling for him, but I was totally involved, wrapped up, engrossed in what was going to happen from moment to moment yes. with his character, you know. Be- because so, yeah. it's fa- it's fascinating to watch. It is. It is. Yeah. I guess we should set this up because um, the building that, C- uh, mm. the name of the character is Cesar. Yeah. Uh, he's the concierge of an apartment building and um, clearly he is of a lower social strata than the people who live in this mm. apartment building. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that is immediately evident yeah. to us, mm-hmm. but it's very clear that that's one of the things that drives his antipathy toward the people that he ostensibly works for. Mm-hmm. He sees himself... Well, he, he, well, let's put it this way. Um, as part of his job, he has an apartment in the building... But it's the shittiest place to live. It's in the basement. Mm-hmm. It's this, it's this barely functional, uh, you know, mm-hmm. little apartment hole in, mm-hmm. in, in the basement that he uh, lives in. We see him go there in the mornings and, and shower and, and go about his business. And the few times that anyone who lives in the apartment building mm-hmm. sees the place, they always, even the police officers later on who are investigating something else, mention that it's a pretty shitty place to live. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, for him it is. The other apartments that we, you know, we get to see them as well, and they're they're quite nice. Mm-hmm. So immediately the movie is showing you the difference in social strata and, and monetary level, the financial capability between him and the people he serves, and then we slowly see all the little ways in which he attempts to make all of these people mm-hmm. in this place miserable. Yeah, his goal seems to be if he can't be happy. Well, then he's not going to allow these people to be happy either. And the thing the movie never tells you that leaves you to wonder is, is is it truly, you know, is his affliction, you know, really the way he sees it, that he is something in him is just incapable of feeling what people call happiness? 
you know, that it's actually like a some sort of, you know, chemical or genetic kind of something in him, you know, that's, that's screwing with his whole psychology there, that he really doesn't have whatever the mechanism in us that feels that. Or is his just resentment towards everything else and towards these people? And because of what we don't, you know, we never find out much about his, his life at all. Is, is, is it just more that he's he's almost come to identify himself? This is how he identifies himself as, as, as this kind of person who can't be happy. Yeah. But is he really, is there really actually more pleasure than he's letting on that he's taking in his ability to just manipulate people's lives and manipulate affairs, you know, their affairs and, you know. Well, I think it's interesting. The movie does give us a glimpse into a possible, a possibility, mm -hmm. shall we say, for Mm -hmm. uh, a way of looking at this. You mentioned a moment ago that uh, the movie doesn't tell us whether this is some kind of chemical thing, if Mm -hmm. this is some kind of psychological imbalance. Mm -hmm. Or what it may be, or if it's just uh, him reacting to feeling like these people mm-hmm. uh, look down on him, and he's going to take them down a peg or seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he's repeatedly throughout the movie going to visit his mo- his, yeah. his yeah. hospitalized mother. Right. Now his his mother never has any dialogue. She's obviously uh, can't speak. Like she, she's whatever her illness is uh, in the hospital. He goes there simply to see her and to kind of talk to her about what he's doing. Yeah, and she's obviously just horrified the whole time. Yes. Because she knows she knows that she's raised a monster or that her son is, is a monster. And you he know, even he says and, that at Yeah, right, point. right. And, and so there's a part of me that thinks that he may be some kind of low-grade sociopath. Yeah, and sociopath that, is kind of the word that I was kind of thinking too. Like, and, and, and maybe his mother underst- under, understands this because she, mm. had, she watched him grow up. She yeah. saw this... And could do nothing about it. Yeah, I mean, what, especially now she can't even tell anybody, you know, what yeah. he's going to do. That's why he can tell her his plans because she can't communicate it to anyone. Yeah, and it's uh, it's very interesting that that's the only little hint about what might be the genesis of yeah. his of his problem. Whether and, it's yeah. whether he was born this way, whether he became this way, it mm-hmm. doesn't really matter in the end. But yeah. there is that mm-hmm. that his mother is fully aware. Mm-hmm. And you get the sense from from the way he speaks to her that this is not something that she's aware of because he's telling her all these details, is because she's known of it for much longer than mm. that. And I think it kind of explains one of the parts that when I first saw the film was a little unclear to me about the t- two of the people that he screws with and messes up their lives and does that are the a cleaning woman and her son. Yes. And. I was first not sure how they fit into the other, the rest of his schemes because they're not happy people, unlike the people who are happy who he's, you know, are pleased with themselves that he tries to take down a peg. But then it finally occurred to me that, oh, they're a mother and son. Him messing up their lives is something related to something he feels about himself and his mother. Because so, yeah. even though the two, the mother and son character that he, that he fucks with, mm-hmm. even though they argue, yeah. they fight and mm-hmm. they fuss at each other. It's very clear that these two people love each other. Yeah, they have a relationship. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that blankness within him, mm-hmm. within Cesar, within I think this emptiness within him, the only way he can seem to fill it is by making people miserable. And yeah. when he gets the opportunity to do that, he does. Yeah. And, of course, it's very convenient for him when he does you know, mess with these two particular people because mm-hmm. he's able to use them to deflect suspicion away from himself. Once again, it's just a it, it is a well-crafted screenplay. It's very well plotted. Everything works the way it should. Everything leads to the next thing. And there's there's really there's absolutely no wasted space. Mm-hmm. No wait there's no wasted space in the narrative. Um, there's no scene what going through the movie a second and third time. 
I thought to myself, this is an hour and a, an hour forty minute mm-hmm. movie. Could this be shorter? Mm-hmm. And when watching it, it's like, yeah, it could be a little bit shorter. But then again, all of the things that I that I initially thought, well, you can move, you can remove mm-hmm. this piece of it and mm-hmm. leave it and leave it out. Mm-hmm. But what all of those things, for instance, there is a character who uh, lives in the apart lives in the apartment complex. And from the moment we see him, he does not like Cesar. Yeah, yeah. He does not like him. Uh, he thinks he's a slacker. Mm-hmm. He thinks uh, he 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 does not do uh, some of the tasks that have been mm-hmm. set set out yeah. for him to do. I almost feel at times it sort of hints that he may know even more than that. That he may be aware, maybe, maybe understand even more of what Cesar is doing, if not the exact details, to more than just him being a slacker or right. a poor employee. So there's a there's a part of me that thought, okay, well you could take. All the scenes with that character out, and the movie would still be the, still be the same. But then I thought about it. I thought, I thought about it a little bit further, mm-hmm. and realized that well, no, if you extract that, what you take out mm-hmm. is the growing um, intensity of the pressure on Cesar because he's the reason that he gets fired from the job later on. Yeah. So you really can't take him out because yeah. this, that he's he's intrinsic to mm-hmm. ratcheting that level the, the the pressure about that thing up higher mm-hmm. and higher as the story goes on. So. It's well. The film is well paced. Yeah. And like I say, the only reason I thought about well, what could be left out of the, you know, what could be left out of this is because it's 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 a thriller and it's longer than ninety minutes. But yeah. it doesn't it doesn't. I'm not going to say it feels long. Yeah. And the payoffs, all of the payoffs, all of the uh, the stuff. By the way, that we're not going to talk about. Yeah, we're not going to. Yeah, just we, we're not going to spoil totally spoil this film. Yeah, there are a number of reveals that we're not gonna we're not going to talk about mm-hmm. them because uh, this is a this is a relatively recent film. It's one that's not very hard to get your hands on. You can find a, a cheap DVD or even Blu-ray of this without too much trouble, mm-hmm. and it is it is worth seeking out. And so uh, there are some things that the movie hides from you as a viewer until <clears throat> they're revealed in yeah. a kind of irretrievably horrible way, mm-hmm. and then um, things begin to escalate further and further from that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Let's just say it's a very satisfying movie, but it's a very it's a very harsh thriller mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. yeah. Now, have you uh, did you watch the making of documentary on the? No, I I, I did I, yeah. I kind of didn't want to because yeah. I was afraid that it would kind of it would kind of point me in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. Did you? Yeah, I did. I mean, after watching the film, of course, but okay. it was a good. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating uh, some of the things about it, but it just made me think of what you were talking about, uh, wondering if some things would be trimmed because there actually are. Well, there's it's actually this isn't part of the documentary, but there are deleted scenes. Yeah, I didn't look at those either. And if you, I, I if you look at them, that. it's pretty much cases where it reveals a few more extra characters that live in the building. Oh, so they did trim some stuff. Out. They did, okay. and uh, but you can see everything that they trim doesn't really. They're good, you know. They're good scenes, but it's just a lot of it's just more scenes of him. You know, messing with someone or kind of nothing in it really gives you any more necessarily information that you don't get from the film already. And and, there's, and one not, of the things, there's not extra insight, <clears throat> right? Right. And one of the things they talk about in the making of documentary is that the film, the script writer originally set it in New York, huh? and when and he actually sent it to um, Balaguerro, uh really just to get his opinion on it. They were friends or something. He sent it to him to just hey, can you read this? See what you think of it? But just see, you know, give me some pointers. What do you think? And Balaguerro got so fascinated by it that he decided he wanted to do it. But what that meant, resetting it in Spain, which, you know, he said really had to, he had to work with the writer to kind of really change the characters all around as far as the characters in the building, just because they had to kind of make it feel more like Spanish type, Spanish people in a Spanish setting as opposed to New York. Yeah. You wouldn't think about it that much if you really would. That would give it just a different dynamic with characters, different energy, you know, that they had to just kind of rework 
the characters uh, to, to make it feel more of a film set in Madrid rather than New York. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, let's take a brief run through, uh, lightly, mm-hmm. through a plot synopsis. Okay. So Cesar is a concierge in an apartment in Barcelona. We, we find out from his voiceover at the beginning of the film that he's not able to find happiness no matter what he does. Or no matter and no matter what good things might happen to him, he just never can be happy. Mm-hmm. We're int- we're introduced to him next. The very next scene, he wakes up in an apartment. His watch wakes him up. He turns it off. He gets out of bed. He's been in bed with uh, a woman. He leaves the apartment, goes downstairs into the basement of the building, mm-hmm. into another apartment, a really crappy looking apartment, where he showers and changes his clothes, and then goes upstairs. Mm-hmm. puts on the smock that he wears as part of his job and begins his day. As the tenants go uh, about their da- daily business, one lady comes down to walk her dogs. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, a family comes down, and the young girl, who's roughly, I would say, 12, mm-hmm. 13, mm-hmm. comes up to the desk there in the lobby and speaks to, to Cesar in a very in a very mean-spirited way and asks if he has the money. Mm-hmm. And he very slyly passes her what looks to be a fair amount of cash in a way that her father can't see what's going on and then she goes about her business. And uh, first, you're not sure exactly what's going on here, Mm -hmm. but we're soon led to understand that she has seen him doing something Mm -hmm. that he wants to be kept quiet and she is blackmailing him. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment, I gotta admit, when I thought this movie's gonna turn into an evil kid movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because that character... Yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) She's... She's... She's pretty evil. Yeah, yeah. She, she's, as, she's as evil as a, a burgeoning teenage girl can be. Right, that right. Way. We then see Caesar visit his mother, who's in a hospital and is uh, sick and practically unable to speak. But she listens to him talk about Clara, who is the woman that he was in bed with at the beginning of the film. We then are introduced back in the uh, the hotel. We, we see him come back and we, met, we find uh, Veronica. She was another tenant. Uh, ask him for a favor to take care of her dogs um, while she's out of the building for for a, a certain period of time, going someplace where she can't take them. Mm-hmm. It gives him detailed instructions on how to take care of them and how to feed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trusted to feed the dogs, Cesar breaks her, these directions completely yeah. when he goes upstairs <laughs> and feeds uh, one of the dogs a, a slice of pie that she actually <laughs> left behind for Cesar to eat. Right. Which of course means that this dog is going to end up having uh, yeah, diarrhea, yeah, and he yeah. knows it. He knows it damn good well. Oh, so absolutely. Yeah. This is just one of those little things that he knows he can get away with that will make this woman unhappy, mm-hmm. make her miserable. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, as the movie goes on, we realize that him feeding this dog this seems to have killed the dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is terrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, anyway. We should mention that when Clara, the woman that he was in bed with, comes downstairs, mm-hmm. and uh, she's very kind to him and very yeah. nice. And he opens the door for her, lets her in the elevator, opens the door for her as she leaves to go to work. But it's even in that opening scene, you get this weird vibe that's like, wait a minute, don't these two people, do they not, are they married? Are they together or whatever? Because we just saw him get up out of the bed with her yeah. and leave to come down to work. Yeah, so the two, like, at that point, I think your, your two thoughts, one is that they're having an affair and they're keeping it a secret. You know? Right. The other one is, for me, I know, you know, he starts off the whole film, tells you right from the first, I can't be happy. And then you see him with this woman, and and then your thought is like, so he can actually have, he is actually having a relationship, and yet still can't be happy about, you know, that 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 whatever, you know, yeah. you think at that point, 
you think, okay, so he's not just a total utter loner. He's actually able to have some sort of relationship with somebody that still apparently isn't affecting him on any kind of emotional level. Well, a little while later, Ursula, the, the little girl, the, the, mm. the, the 12 or 13-year-old. <laughs> the uh, bad seed, yeah. Uh, sneaks out of school, goes to Caesar's apartment, and uh, tells him that now, besides just mm. this one-time payoff that she got from him for keeping her mouth shut about whatever she knows, mm. she also wants a, a, a videotape. Well, not a videotape. She wants a, a DVD of an, of an adult movie. Yeah. <laughs> Caesar's willing to go along because, obviously, whatever mm. she knows, he wants to keep quiet. Mm-hmm. At this point, we're then introduced to the to the older gentleman, who he has, who Cesar has successfully pissed off mm-hmm. by not taking care of the plants up on the roof, and causing some of them to die. It's on his second visit to see his mother that Cesar starts to go into detail about his plans for Clara, mm-hmm. the beautiful young woman mm-hmm. that uh, he, he he seems to be spending mm-hmm. each evening with, and he says that he is close to finding a way to wipe Clara's smile off her face. And it seems to be his goal at this point when that information comes out of him as he's speaking to his mother is when it becomes very clear that the way he deals with his problem Mm -hmm. is by harming other people, by doing things that he knows he's going to be able to get away with Mm -hmm. that make other people sad, unhappy, or Mm -hmm. miserable. And so you begin to wonder, well, what is he up to with Clara? But then we, the movie immediately shows us some of the things that he's doing. We see that while he's in her apartment, when she's not there, he's injecting stuff into her cold cream mm-hmm. and into the various bottles. Toothpaste. And- yeah, toothpaste and various other things. And at first you're thinking, well, what, what can this mm-hmm. be about? And then the movie reveals that he hide every night. He's mm-hmm. hiding mm-hmm. under Clara's bed yeah. until she goes to bed and goes to sleep, and then he's getting up in the getting up, chloroforming her so that she won't she won't uh, hear him and wake up, and then going about doing whatever he's doing in her apartment. And at that point, we also see him poking through all of her things, poking mm. through the cabinets and everything. <clears throat> right. He discovers that she has a lot of bug spray. Yeah. So he, he's yeah. like, okay, so she's mm. she doesn't like bugs. Mm-hmm. So then we see him uh, placing things, placing this, uh, this gooey liquid in certain places around the apartment, uh, which, of course, immediately, you know, this mm-hmm. is going to be something that attracts bugs. Yeah, yeah. And it does. Her apartment yeah. becomes infested. Mm-hmm. But what's amazing is this is just part of him ramping up what he's doing to Clara. Yeah. Because even this horrible—I mean, I mean, this is this is a massive infestation of bugs that he causes in this place. Yeah. Uh, even she she's such a good-natured person. Yeah. She is such See. a naturally happy person. Yeah. That she takes this in stride. I mean, yeah, she's like, not thrilled about yeah, it. Yeah, she's like, oh, yeah, she almost sees kind of the humor in it or something. She's like, this yeah. is... I mean, if, if he's the protagonist of his story, she is his arch nemesis. You yes. know, she is the villain in this because... In his she, mind, she's the villain. Exactly, because she is one of those people who is just... And has kind of the indomitable spirit. You yes. know, she, she, she rolls with the punches and he can't stand that. Yeah. She is, in a weird way, I think I, you, you put it in a way that mm. is very close to the way I started to think of it, which is that she is the yin to his yang, yeah. or she is the joker to his Batman, yeah, however right, you want to place right, this. Right. Uh, she's, his, she's his kryptonite because mm-hmm. she is incredibly positive. She is mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. very positive human being. 
So if Clara is his opposite, mm. it's 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 kind of the way I kept I kept seeing it is that mm-hmm. he can't be happy, mm-hmm. and it seems almost impossible to make her sad. Right. Yeah. And so I found that to be, <sighs> like I say, that it's a good script. So it doesn't point it out and have somebody say it out loud because mm. then it would be over obvious right. and stupid and yeah. then it would become something really silly but as the core of what the of what the film is doing to us as viewers by presenting this these two opposites who are in the same place and one starts to wage war against the other mm. it's it's kind of horrible because yeah it started it, uh, the more you think about the story the more you think about these kind of things blown up into a larger idea it becomes a, a kind of view of how impossible it is to overcome relentless negativity. Yeah, it becomes yeah. A, a kind of treatise on how terrible it is mm-hmm. and how overpowering relentless mm-hmm. negativity can be to not just people but to an entire society, yeah. to a country, yeah. to a planet. And it becomes, I don't know if this is just because I'm watching it in the year 2020 and these are the kind of things that start occurring to you when you're going through a fucking pandemic. Mm -hmm. But it's the difference between taking an optimistic view of the future so that you Mm -hmm. are looking downrange Mm -hmm. instead of focusing on the here and now and becoming more and more navel-gazing and obsessed with the the horrors and the the, Mm -hmm. the anxiety and the the terrible... the, the, the terrible nature of the things that are being gone through right now instead of trying to be positive in a way that will lead you forward and allow you to persevere to yeah. get through to exist mm-hmm. beyond the problems that the life that life lays in front of you and these are all things that are there in the movie the the, the dialogue is it's not it's not particularly arch but yeah. it is smartly written enough yeah. so that uh, enough generalities are used that Dialogue can be extracted, and you could not know necessarily what the specifics of the the, the uh, conversation is about, and see them as uh, a conversation, brief though some of them are, about something larger than the specifics of what's going on in the scene. Yeah, and so it's it's already a fascinating character study because mm-hmm. the movie is primarily about this yeah. one man. Yeah, but you're right, Clara as his antagonist, in a way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as the the opposite to him, mm-hmm. is is rather fascinating in that she is, without a doubt, an incredibly wonderful and nice and sweet yeah. and kind, and and from everything we can see, a very loving person. Yeah. And his, it's almost as if every one of those character traits, including her beauty, beauty because she's an incredibly pretty mm-hmm. woman as mm-hmm. well. Almost all of these things key his. Anger, yeah, his hatred, yeah, and also even more so that his conceptions of what the way he thinks he will break her down keep getting thrown back in his face. It's good, yes. like he first he thinks he'll attack because he thinks, oh, she's a beautiful woman. I'll attack her vanity, you know, her right. her physical view of herself. That doesn't work. Then no, he thinks he, he, he puts some stuff yeah. in her cold cream and her facial creams and things like that. He gives her this rash. He gives her a rash. rash. She keeps motoring she, on. You she know, deals, she she deals with it. She he, goes to a dermatologist mm-hmm. and she copes with it. So then he tries to attack her phobias with the bugs. You know, yep. once again, you know, she's grossed out, but she's not traumatized by it. You yeah, know, and so. she like takes it well. She's like, well, you know, while you're fumigating the place, I'll stay with my mother. Oh, and he even tells her that he's going to have to throw out a bunch of her stuff. And she's like, well, it was time to clean out anyway. I mean, he yeah, just can't yeah, get to she, this girl. She, she, he thinks that will that will set her back on her heels. She's like, well, you know, I guess it was time for yeah. spring cleaning anyway. If you have to, th- whatever you have to throw out, just tell me what it is and I'll, and I'll just yeah. replace it. So there's one point where he's standing over her sleeping body and he says something to the effect of, it's time to... 
I get serious about this or something is time yeah. to ramp things up or we're going to move yeah. to, you know, so, yeah. And things get worse from there. Yeah, yeah. At some point during all of this information that the movie is giving you, we've seen repeatedly that she is being delivered these uh, handwritten letters in these yellow envelopes. Mm-hmm. And how she will occasionally open one and start to read it or, or read a p- portion of it and then tear it up and throw it away. And uh, for the longest time, I thought that these were were uh, lovelorn letters from uh, a boyfriend yeah, or an ex of some type <clears throat> mm-hmm. that she's she's discarding because she's done with that relationship or whatever. But then as the movie goes on, we start to see that these are letters that Cesar is writing to her yeah. and sending to her anonymously from different places around the city. And um, eventually, uh, as things begin to ramp up, these letters cause a police investigation. Yeah. And uh, it's just one of the many details, including uh, backtracing a, uh, uh, a prepaid phone that he's been using to send her nasty nasty text messages as yeah. well so yeah. that they're untraceable to him. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's through the... It's it's when uh, these police start investigating is when he uses that untraceable... You know, the, 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 the prepaid untraceable phone. He plants that in such a way and a few of those yellow envelopes in a place that lends the police to believe that it's the young son, the teenage mm-hmm. son or the mm-hmm. early 20-something son of the cleaning lady who is responsible for this harassment of... Uh, Clara at that point. So I'll just say that I think that there's a lot of reasons that that whole sequence is is, is fascinating because it shows how clever Cesar is. It's another example mm-hmm. of how smart he has been, how clever he is, how uh, there's almost no suspicion thrown on him during that entire yeah, police investigation. Yeah. It's very well it's very well played because he knows uh, he's kind of it almost seems as if he's been setting this up just in case something happens so that he's got these people as fall fall guys yeah but another thing it sets up if you pull back just a little bit and I can I can just not stop myself in the year 2020 from not pulling mm-hmm. back a little bit looking at it this way is another way to look at that is is that he even though these cleaning people we've already talked about them being uh, uh, a relatively close mother and son. But another part of that is they're ostensibly part of his social strata, part of his class, essentially. But that does not stop him from essentially eating his own, Mm -hmm. turning on them in a way Mm -hmm. to save himself. Um, As a matter of fact, he seems to have been very carefully planning to discard them, to throw them to the wolves. Well, he's also realizing that the way people look at him is also how they look at them. And so if you're going to set up yeah. Patsy, you know, there, you know, he knows already that they'll treat they, those people will be treated with the same prejudice that he thinks that he is yeah. treated with. The same disdain that mm-hmm. that he would be looked upon as mm-hmm. soon as suspicion fell on him will fall mm-hmm. on, you know, that mm-hmm. they will also experience. And so, mm-hmm. I, I think, like I say, there's a there is a semi subtle class distinction and class consciousness mm-hmm. commentary mm-hmm. going on within the structure of the story. And it's kind of fascinating because, in a way, it's 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 possible to see Caesar as this, once again, a monster, mm-hmm. but also as kind of a, a hideous force of violent nature mm-hmm. who has a target. It's going in a particular direction, mm-hmm. but to get to that target, they're more than he's more than willing to harm anybody, mm-hmm. anybody and everybody. But what's fascinating is as the movie goes on. 
it is his desire to to get Clara, to make her unhappy, to take her mm-hmm. down a peg, to quote unquote mm-hmm. wipe that smile off her face. Yeah. That causes him to spend so much time on her that does him in. Yeah. Yeah. Now you or should. Or yeah. Do but him you, in. Right. But you also just get back a second. You said something about he's you know he he was willing to do any kind of harm to people, but let's also qualify and say that he's not really. He doesn't desire their death, you no, know. No, no, he, he doesn't desire. Them. And yeah, is that because that kind of defeats the? He would rather than be alive and unhappy, you know. It's like their, you know, their death is not what right. and is not the end game that he's going for with these people, which makes him once again a very fascinating and different kind of a villain for this type of story. Yeah, we should stress he's not a killer. He's not no. looking to find a way to get away with murdering no, someone. No, at all. No, there is a death that occurs at a certain mm. point in this movie. Yeah, but it is certainly not a goal of his to kill anybody. No, you're right. Killing them would get rid of the thing that he wants from them yeah. because what he wants is to bask in their yeah. suffering. Yeah. And if they're dead, then he can't do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So here here comes one of the questions that immediately pops into my mind when I start to think about someone of that type. Mm-hmm. Are they a worse monster than a murderer? Mm-hmm. Is this a worse human being than someone whose goal is to to get away with an actual mm. killing? Yeah. I mean... I, I don't know. He may be less... I mean, there may be less chance or hope of saving of redemption or saving or, you know, because if he doesn't feel... You know, that's the whole question with his, his character is, is there any saving this guy at all? If, you, if you're yeah. truly the type of person who nothing can get... Who gets pleasure out of nothing, except if you can consider what he gets from other people's... The satisfaction that yeah. he gets from other people's misery... As the only pleasure he can get, then how do you reach? What do you say? How 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 do you reach somebody like that? You know, it's, it, does that make them like you said more of a horrible person than than somebody who just uh, you know kills out of a, a crime of passion or something? Or, or you know? I, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's a it's a it's an interesting question and one mm-hmm. that I'm not sure I have a good straightforward yeah, answer sure. for. Yeah. One of the things about this movie that I admire the most is that it is so tightly directed. It's a great script, tightly directed. In other words, it's exactly what you need for a thriller. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, it reminds me of some of the best things that Hitchcock was able to pull Mm -hmm. off Mm -hmm. in his prime. Mm -hmm. Those things where you're watching and there's this great story going on in a Hitchcock film. Mm -hmm. But it's and it's punctuated by these incredible moments, these sequences Mm -hmm. that are incredibly tense. Mm And there are a number of them in this movie. Oh, yeah. And one of them is way out of bounds that we're not... Well, actually, a couple of them are way out of bounds that we're not going to talk of. But one of them I think we can discuss a little bit is the moment at which, in the film, things begin to ramp up precipitously. Mm. Which is that it's another night where Cesar is hiding under uh, Clara's bed, waiting for her to... Get, come, come in, go to bed, go to sleep, so that he can chloroform her and go about mm-hmm. whatever he's going to do. But she's she doesn't. She comes home very late, to the point where he's almost. I mean, he's fallen. He's almost fallen asleep. I think he had fallen asleep. Yeah. It's it's something that was clearly going to eventually happen. This is a young, beautiful, single woman, and of course she's been out on a date mm-hmm. and she's brought that date home. Mm-hmm. And of course, over the next uh, next few scenes, we realize that this is a, an old boyfriend of hers that yeah. they just haven't seen each other in a few weeks, and so mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. they're now getting back together. This is not some you know this is not some not guy she's picked up at right. a bar. This is yeah. someone she's known for some time. Yeah. But of course, now Cesar is trapped mm-hmm. in the apartment under the bed with these two people on the bed having sex, mm-hmm. and you quickly go from oh my god to 
how in the holy living hell is he going to get out of this apartment? Mm -hmm. Because we're privy to the fact that that was the night he had finally decided that enough was enough and he was about to ramp things up into probable violence and possibly Mm -hmm. murder. Mm-hmm. We're never, we're never going to know for sure, but that does seem to be the direction in which he was going to go. That whole sequence, uh, I, I didn't time it. And I now wish I had timed yeah. it to see how long this yeah. segment of the this section of the film is, where he is attempting to get out of the apartment without being seen by these two people, mm-hmm. is textbook brilliant. <laughs> suspenseful yeah. filmmaking. What it's we, genius. What we also find is that he's been keeping some of these supplies in the mattress in the bottom of the... Yeah. So that when they start doing their business on top of the mattress, it actually causes one of the some of the liquid to spill. This is some of the chloroform to spill, the chloroform on him. spill on him. So he has, no, he has to so get out from under the bed. At the same time that he's, he's, he's actually... Yeah, at the same time he's starting to fade, he's he's actually uh, he's, he's actually trying to get, to get out before he's he... has got to get yeah. out of the bed. Yeah. 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 got to get out from underneath the bed. And it's just... And these are the moments where no matter what... You, this is the moments where it doesn't matter how much or how little you care about this character, you've become involved in his story enough that you're as tense yes. as he is. You're totally on the edge of your seat. Exactly. Whether you're like, oh, it's not because, you know, oh, I want this guy to get away. It's just because it's just you You feel he. the film conveys his situation so so much. You know, you're just dying to see what happens next and how's he going to pull this off? How's he going to... And, the, and that's, what, that's one of the fascinating things about this where... It's not until late in the movie when certain things are revealed mm-hmm. where you realize just how manipulated you have been by the structure oh, yeah. of the film. Oh, yeah. I love the way the film reveals yeah. what it reveals to you. It's The structure is great, the way it gives away information and how it structures that. Yeah, and everything in the movie mm-hmm. is built in a way to build mm-hmm. as much sympathy as can be built for this man. Mm-hmm. Even when we're watching him do horrible things, the movie by virtue of being a movie, mm-hmm. is putting you on his side. Whether you're really on his side mm-hmm. or not, by mm-hmm. virtue of following him through these yeah. various yeah. tense situations. Knowing what's at stake for him and what's, yeah. you know, what, what's, what's really he's done. and so yeah, It's smart how the film leads you bit by bit down the road to mm-hmm. just how bad he is as a person. Yeah. And I think that one of the neater things, there, there are signs of his, let's call it madness. There are mm-hmm. signs of his mm-hmm. madness mm-hmm. throughout the movie, but the movie reveals these, these little details that should have added up better for us before they're kind of shoved in our face. There's the, the, the he, he's constantly keeping a journal of mm-hmm. when people leave the building and when mm-hmm. they come back. Mm-hmm. Because it gives him an exact model of every, ten, every, of the, every one of the tenant's behavior and at first, that just seems like this weird eccentricity. He writes all yeah. this stuff down. And by that, by the point we're doing that, that's just kind of a, a neat little quirk of character that just, it's like another neat detail about this guy. But then when we get to the end of the film, mm-hmm. the realization of what that little book that he's writing all this stuff in, what he does with that information, what he does with that little book at the end of the movie, is just a further gut punch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to... to almost rub your nose in the fact that you should have been paying attention to this. Mm-hmm. You should have been paying attention to this as well as a few other things in the movie to tell you just how wrong a person he is, just how off he is. How off he is. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that, once again, is something that's very much uh, a part of telling stories of this type, mm-hmm. which is the more detail you get about a character, the more you know about the character, the more you're you're likely to sympathize with him because those details 
draw us in. Those details show us the kind of inner life of this person, seeing uh, what, what they like to eat, uh, what, you know, watching them in the shower, watching them uh, frustrated, watching them going mm-hmm. through uh, problems at work. Watching them deal with unpleasant people who are being, you know, who are being mean to them. Watching them uh, deal with the various things that we can all identify with to one degree or another are put in place in a story like this to get you to one degree or another on this character's side. And all the little things that should be warning signs we are able to ignore or push to the side or think of as interesting quirks or just simply something bizarre. Yeah. And... I hate to say it, but that is what happens to us in real life as well. Yeah, yeah. There are point. there are people that any of us have known throughout our lives mm. who, at a certain point, we realize, I can't really be around this person yeah, anymore. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. This, yeah. this is someone that I really should not be spending any time with. Mm-hmm. I, I need to keep this person a little further away from me than I have been. Mm-hmm. And it's easy after the fact to look back. And see all of the little telltale signs along the way that should have set off an alarm bell. Yeah, yeah. But they were coupled. The learning of those things were coupled with other things that made you sympathize with the person, to yeah. be empathic toward them, to to yeah. to kind of agree with them. Some of these are things that you went through with the person. Some, and so those things override the similarities that we all have together. Tend to make us ignore the quirks and the oddities yeah. that should be warning signs. <laughs> Yeah, right. Luckily for us, there aren't that very many people in your life that are going to be that way. Right. <laughs> but when one of those monsters like this guy comes yeah. along, yeah. it's so easy after the fact to be able to look back and see mm-hmm. clearly all those things that should have told you something. Yeah. And luckily you and I never spotted those about each other or we wouldn't be doing this oh, podcast. Oh, I know, here, I know, right? I know. So I know. We managed to long, keep them hidden yeah. from one another all long, this time. Long ago, it's it's <laughs> it's long ago I decided that I'd spotted them. Yeah, but you wasn't gone, aware of them. But you've gone so far. I've it's gone so far. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I've invested too much time in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just, I mean, rather than admit point. to the mistake, you just <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, it was an error. Right. It was a right. mistake to get to know you thirty some odd years ago. Yeah. But let's error. let's be clear. Let's yeah. say it. Let's say it. This is this nothing is, good this, has come of our nothing our good, nothing positive, <laughs> nothing nothing that's making anyone's life better or happier <laughs> has come from us knowing each other. That's right. <laughs> and we should have figured it out a long time ago. We're really slow on the uptake. Oh no, we are. This well. is terrible. <laughs> Am I the Clara? No, I'm not the Clara. There's no way in hell I'm the Clara. You're the Clara. Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> I clearly say so. <laughs> well, before we go any further, um, and we're not going to discuss any more of the plot, really. Yeah. I think yeah. that's where we ought to draw it to a close. But I didn't want to point out the actor who plays Cesar, mm-hmm. uh, Luis uh, Tovar. To- is it Tovar or Tos- uh, uh, Luis uh, Tosar? Tosar, yes. T O S A R. Is phenomenal. He is fantastic. He's an incredible he really actor, is. and I thought he was incredible before I looked up and realized just how many amazing acting awards the fellow yeah. has has yeah. secured in his career, including I felt, I felt three like, Goyas. Yeah, I felt like he looked familiar, but then I looked at his his filmography and nothing else really leaped out to me as something that I had had that I could could recall seeing. So uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, but, I don't know that I've ever seen any yeah. of, his, of his other films uh, either, simply because mostly they seem to be uh, yeah. straightforward dramas mm. as opposed to the kind of things that you know mm. degenerates like you and I watch. right. Right, but he's so good in this. Yes, yeah, he is. And without the kind of performance that someone of his caliber is able to bring to a role like this, mm-hmm. the movie wouldn't work nearly as well as it does. Yeah, 
he is extraordinary. There are a lot of excellent performances. Oh, they really in the movie. are really good acting in this movie. But he is, like I say, he's on screen more than ninety mm. percent of the running time. So yeah. if he's not doing his, if he's not good, <clears throat> it's not going to work. Yeah, he has as an actor this amazing ability to convey a kind of sense of uh, of being wounded, mm. of not not. I don't think the movie, except in a couple of very specific places ever show us with him with a, a look of anger on his face, yeah, right. of rage. Right. The rest of the time, he's kind of like this sad sack person who's just absorbing the insults yeah. and uh, the belittlings that occur to a man in the job that he has. And he's so good at making this kind of really kind of pathetic figure into someone who, over the course of the film, we as we, more, as we learn more and more about him, he doesn't. His outward uh, affect doesn't change, but we begin to understand more of what is hidden behind it, and it's not done in a cheap way. I, I mentioned that the film starts with him giving us a voiceover, but that voiceover doesn't reoccur in the movie. This is not a movie that is is leaning heavily on the idea of giving you an internal voice. It's giving you all the things that you can observe. And then this actor is being able to, it's so good, he's yeah. able to convey mm-hmm. the inner workings of this man's mind once you're over, once you get that piece of information right at the beginning about this kind of blankness within him, this inability to be happy. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's it's a masterful performance. Yeah, like I say, it's it not it's hard great. to see why this guy is, is so well, it's so lauded and so well yeah. thought of in Spain. Yeah. He's, he's exceptional. Just to, I wanted to mention just some of the other kind of films that this sort of put me in mind of, and kind of comparing to uh, films where that take place in a ho- you know in a hotel or where you've got some character who's sort of looking in. You know, we've seen this kind of thing as far as the structure where you've got one character who sort of has a way of spying on or, or infiltrating people's lives within an apartment. You know, in, right. in some ways in really extremely violent ways, in some ways more sinister or, or subtle, but. Um, I was thinking of, you know, like The Tenant, you know, Polanski's The Tenant was one. Yes, yes, put very, me in much mind so. of. Uh, very, very much so, yes. And if I recall, The Toolbox Murders, I think, also was a film that, I, if I recall that, I believe, it's been a long time since I saw it, but I feel like that's the movie I'm thinking about that I think takes place. You're thinking about with Cameron Mitchell? Yes, yes, yeah. I believe it. Um, but, um, and of course, Bellaguerro has already, as we mentioned, he did Wreck, you know, so yeah. obviously he has a fascination too for those sort of worlds there where everybody's kind of sharing the same space and all the enclosed world of a apartment, an apartment building complex, or, you know. Yeah. But I also saw, uh, uh, and I guess this was more on the part of the writer, although obviously Bellaguerro doing something like Wreck has, is influenced by Romero, but the, the story too, uh, a couple of, of things uh, it made me think of, see a little Romero influence there, and one is uh, Martin. I thought of my, in the, the, way that we keep hearing the voiceover, kind of the radio psychologist kind of oh, a yeah, call-in yeah, yeah. show there, you know, kind of made me think it's sort of a little bit of a, a I forgot all Martin. about that. I forgot about mentioning that radio show that he's he's always listening to in his mm. spare time. Yeah. yeah. And eventually ends up calling into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I thought think of Martin and uh, the, la- the other one too is, uh, I mean, who can see swarming cockroaches and not think of E.G. Marshall, you know, from, <laughs> from Creepshow, the last segment of Creepshow. I just had to think. I thought, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yes, Polanski's the 10th. Uh, yeah. you know taxi driver there's a little Travis yeah, Bickle in, there's, there's a little Travis Bickle in this guy yeah yeah um, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer yeah. where because that film very much puts you in a position of sympathizing with mm-hmm. a, a monster mm-hmm. you know a, mm-hmm. a master, another masterful performance from oh, yeah. Michael Rooker in that case yeah um, 
well, just a, a quick aside, it kind of also reminds me a little bit of Cronenberg's uh, first feature, Shivers. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, there you go. That's a good, the, good example, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, a, that's a bit more... Uh, a, a bit more extreme and a very mm-hmm. different kind of, uh, yeah. let's shall we say, uh, story engine. Yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. <laughs> to, to be as vague about what what's happening in Shivers as I can be. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, the enclosed space. Well, mm-hmm. these people are not trapped in this thing, but no. in a way. You kind of are always yeah. trapped with mm. the people that you live in an apartment yeah. complex oh, yeah. with. And how much you depend on how they live and conduct their lives is going to have a direct effect on, I mean, they can affect yeah. yours and by something they do, you know. And so there's that's that that's that feeling there, too, is you're kind of dependent on one another This, you know, to, to help keep everything from falling to shit, you know. If, 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 the, good, if the goodwill doesn't flow in both directions, right, then right. things can go bad pretty quickly yeah. in, some, uh, in some extreme ways. Yeah. How many of uh, this director's films have you seen other than this? Yeah, basically, uh, the I seen Wreck, uh, saw Darkness, which I like too. I saw The Nameless, and that's really it before uh, before this one. Okay, so you haven't seen. Yeah, I heard or... certainly of the others. Heard okay. some of the others, or was aware of, but I just had not got around to any of the others. I think we would. Uh, I've always had it in the back of my mind that for these Beyond Nashy episodes, we would eventually tackle this man's film. But I always mm. pictured us going straight for The Nameless first. Yeah. Yeah kind of just tackling that first movie mm-hmm. and digging into it because it is such an exceptional piece of work. But as with all things in this podcast, mm-hmm. we do seem to kind of... Yeah. It's, there's, a, there's a randomness to our choices. Yeah. Here it just seems to go throughout everything that I we know, do. yeah. It's very true, yeah. yeah. But yeah. nevertheless, this is this is still a very good film. This it is, is an exceptional thriller. Uh, on, the, on the 1 to 10 scale, I end up giving it... Uh, I, I vacillated between a 7 and an 8, and I think it's really only a 7. Mm-hmm. But I think... Because I think his nameless is like an 8 or possibly mm-hmm. even a 9. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Darkness, I think, is a 7 or an 8. Mm-hmm. And Fragile is probably an 8. It's just a great ghost story. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, uh, Rex, an 8 or a 9. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of I fell with an 8 on this one. Okay, and, good. Uh, yeah, yeah, really enjoyed it a lot. And I just thought it was just a yeah, really, really well, con- incredibly well-constructed and acted film. Before I put it in front of you, had you had you even seen this? Had you even not, known not anything about it? Not at all. I had no idea. Nothing at all? Never, no, not at all. Well, I'm hoping that this, by, by us talking mm. about it here, we, we bring this movie to more people's attention yeah. and kind of yeah. drive them toward it and hopefully get some other people to uh, try this thing out for a change because mm-hmm. it's not, uh, I mean, like I say, it's been released on DVD and in Blu-ray, mm-hmm. on Blu-ray here in the States. Mm-hmm. It's not very, it's not all that difficult to come by. I think, uh, I think I bought my Blu-ray off of Hamilton Books mm-hmm. for <laughs> some ridiculously low price. Yeah. Um, so... If you are at all curious about this, like I said, we have not given away probably the last third of this thing because right. we really don't want to ruin the mm-hmm. the really intense reveals that this movie has in its final act. It's a uh, it's it's an exceptional movie and one that I think um, if you th- let's put it this way, if you thought that uh, uh, the golden age of Spanish horror was really the only period mm-hmm. that you need to pay attention to in uh, the the realm of Spanish genre film. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and you don't have to jump straight to something that most people would know about, like Wreck, mm-hmm. to find real gems, even with yeah. just this filmmaking. Yeah, since the '90s on, I mean, Spanish cinema has really ramped up. You know, some some serious, great, great contributions. There's been some, there have been some amazing there have been some amazing films. I'll I'll always go back to uh, films like Thesis. Thesis, and, I was uh, thinking of that one. Yeah, and nobody knows anybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, there's there's been some really amazing films out there if we can point some people toward them so much mm-hmm. the better 
uh, I keep hoping that Thesis specifically would come out on Blu-ray. They would give us a chance because yeah. I think the yeah. the DVD is now out of print, sadly, and therefore very difficult for people to get their hands on. Mm-hmm. But Thesis is an, an, another one that I would really mm-hmm. like to eventually cover because uh, that's yeah. a movie that is is incredibly tense and very well written and directed film, and also. Uh, Boy, does it have a lot to say about uh, not just human nature, but the way yeah. in which people interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, the way we the way we look for love, the way we look for affection, the way we look for the connections between people that mean something long term. Uh, just an incredible film. Thesis as a as a title has so mm-hmm. many has so many <laughs> layers in that film. It's so good, so good. Well, all right, folks. I, I think we're going to leave it there for uh, sleep tight. Just, uh, I think both of us can kind of recommend that you seek it out. Definitely. And uh, we'll take a break and come back and then uh, see what we have in the uh, NashiCast mailbag. Mm -hmm. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. This podcast takes no shortcut in producing outstanding content. How they haven't become more widely recognized is beyond me. I love this show. Smart commentary, in-depth interviews, and great production. It's obvious how serious these guys take their podcast and bring that next level of professionalism that anyone would be hard-pressed to match. There are few things better in life than listening to people who are both passionate and knowledgeable about their subject matter. The Projection Booth, with their wide and wild range of film discussions, is one of those things. Simple as that. The Projection Booth is the highest quality film podcast around. I love the focus on cult films, witty, informative banter, and amazing interviews. The Projection Booth is the best podcast out there, if you're a serious film lover. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to... Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on... Monster Kid Radio! The cat is body in search of a street that's like a can of rock and roll dancing feet. So raise your paws in the air like you just don't care. And shake your fucking little dairy
right, let's give a, a look to the mailbag and see what we've got. Mm. We've got one email here. Let's check out and see what we've got in front of us. Uh, it's from uh, uh, Alex. It says, uh, hi, guys. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years, and this is my first email to you. He, fi- he finally decided to write this. <laughs> cool. We appreciate that. Uh, he says, I wanted to know what you think a Paul Nashi mario Baba collaboration would have been like. I always felt these two should have worked together at some point in the 70s. I think they would have been a great team. Two talented artists who had a great feel for the horror genre. Well, that, yeah, mm. I think that that would have been a collaboration that would have blown my mind. Yeah, I think so. And and um, I feel like, and I think that it could have had the potential to, to have have worked between the two because, you know, it seems like Bava from everything I can tell, I think his actors really liked him and the people that worked with him, you know, it seemed like he was not a, you know, megalomaniac, maniac kind oh, of, no, uh, no, no, yeah, yeah. Most of the actors that I've, that I've heard, uh, mm-hmm. heard speak about Mario Bava have a lot of wonderful things to say about him. And, mm-hmm. uh, there, of course, like Cameron Mitchell, who worked with him on like three or four different films, just, you mm-hmm. know, loved him to death. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, you know, uh, kind of get in the way or, or you have to kind of take into account when, when people talk about, oh, I wish this great artist to work for this great artist is you're also dealing with two great artists. Egos can sometimes be a clash, but I feel like Nashi would, have, again, you know, Baba not seeming to have the type of ego that brought that kind of confrontation to a set and Nashi always wishing that his directors had more of a feel for, the, you know, the horror genre and what he was trying to convey. You know, yeah. he might have really responded to Baba's visual sense and 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 uh, I think another thing's interesting about that is is that Baba really never really tackled any of the classic monsters or any of the kind of like like this is true, and yeah. so what you know what would he have done with like a werewolf film or a or a, or you know an actual more traditional Dracula film or with an I had not thought it? about that yeah. you're right yeah Baba never did do a a werewolf film or a, mm. a mummy film or a zombie mm. film or anything like that I mean he did he did ghost stories. Yeah, right. He did several ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And stories that had versions of a vampire, kind of a vampiric character, yeah. but not your classic Dracula kind of vampire. Certainly, certainly. That would that would have been mm-hmm. interesting. Then again, if, that's, if, if you're talking about, um, it depends on what period of the 70s you're talking about. If you're talking mm-hmm. early, the idea of Bava being someone who got behind the camera for a, a Valdemar Daninsky film, I can imagine that being an incredible thing. Yeah, yeah, me too. But... Also, that uh, if you're talking about right after the bust of the uh, Golden Age of Spanish Horror, if you're talking about 75, 76, 77, those last mm-hmm. few years that Baba was alive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, up to about 1979 or 80, that was a very tumultuous period of time for Paul Nashi, where, yeah. you know, the, the, the horror genre was, mm-hmm. was not nearly as viable in Spain as it had been before the death of uh, General Franco. So... It's easier to imagine the two of them finding a way to collaborate, or mm-hmm. producers putting them in the same, yeah. you know, in, in a position where the money depended upon the two of them both being involved. Yeah. That would that would be interesting. At that point in Nashi's career, uh, they may have been able to make uh, a film that maybe didn't even necessarily mm-hmm. lend itself to being a supernatural story whatsoever. It could yeah. have been something along <clears> the lines <throat> of what Nashi was producing in the late seventies, mm-hmm. along the lines of uh, the Frenchman's Garden, and Death of or, a President, or yeah. Yeah, yeah I, and I can see something like that happening. Uh, I mean, it's uh, Baba's last film, last Excuse completed me. film, was uh, an incredible crime thriller called Rabid Dogs. Oh, yeah, yeah. That wasn't even you know fully edited mm-hmm. together until yeah. after he passed away, years yeah. after he passed away. And uh, it's it's a taut, brilliantly mm-hmm. made 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's exactly what you would expect. Yeah. From when, when you say the words Mario Bava crime thriller, it's mm-hmm. like, well, I'm assuming it's going to be very, very taut and and suspenseful and mm-hmm. uh, nerve jangling and all those things. And that was a period of time in the late '70s when more and more Nashi was making those kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the sniper. Um, Certainly, films that were dig- digging into just the sheer nastiness of human behavior. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, one of the kind of games I played with Alex's question was I just sort of taking it a little further was I just kind of thought to myself, you know, what Bava films that Bava did make could I see Paul Nashie have been in or, or, or played in that yeah. might have been effective? And that was a, that was the tougher of the two. That was the tougher of for me because I as much as of course Nashie I think is a terrific actor and can play a lot well, of different it's, roles. It's but it's a good idea. Too. But is 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 I was having trouble finding a whole lot of roles that I necessarily would. And there weren't really any things I would want him necessarily to replace, but just playing around with it. Rabbit Dogs is one that came out up as I was thinking of Nashi as actually the father, the actually the guy that's driving the car that has that kid. Oh, uh-huh. But again, Nashi physically is so much more imposing than that guy would be. The Nashi, I don't know if yeah, he would need somebody that you need somebody where that the final reveal in Rabbit Dogs is mm. more of a surprise than it would yes, be for exactly. somebody like Nashi. Yeah. yeah, and so I kept running into some of those kind of issues. I mean, in some of the films, I could see him as like a you know one of the police figures or the inspector figures yeah, or something easily, like yeah. maybe in Hatchet for the Honeymoon or I mean, something he, like he, that he, play, he played that kind of role multiple mm-hmm. times so but I really found myself leaning back and I found myself really kind of thinking that even though this was sort of technically really be- when Nashi was just before Nashi's real acting career took off when he was at the most being like extras in films and having small roles but I thought when Baba was doing some of his sword and sandal stuff Oh, now that now, like I was thinking, like Hercules in the Haunted World, you know, Nashi would not have made a bad Hercules. You know, he's a little maybe shorter than you would want Hercules to be, but if yeah. you put slap the facial hair on, you know, with the muscles, I mean, he 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 at least, if nothing else, he would have been he would have made a very convincing character in those types of films, or in an Eric the Conqueror kind of film. I could see him being sort yeah. of that character from that type of film that Baba did, like something more like that. I can see him possibly fitting in. I can see what you're saying about trying to cast Nashi in an already existing Baba yeah. film to see if he mm. would fit. That becomes a difficult thought it does. process. That becomes a that, that's a it's mm. an interesting game. Yeah, but because I'm thinking, you know, I was trying like Baron Blood. I was like, I can't see him in Joseph Cotton's role. Not really. But like in Lisa and the Devil, I thought, what about him instead of Telly Savalas? You know, I never like to lose any Telly in that time. But I thought <laughs> him in that Telly Savalas role and. It's like I said, they just, I just was, hey, maybe, I mean, he could, he, it's not that he wouldn't have done fine in there, but oh, I can't see him. Oh, oh you got this, one? This is weird. Go. Well, there's the bastardized version of Lisa the Devil. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, House of Exorcism. House of Exorcism. And instead of Robert Alda, if Nashie were playing the priest. Ooh, yeah. Now, that see, that's a good, that's an interesting, yeah. That would work. I mean, Robert, don't get me wrong, Robert Alda's mm. an excellent actor. Oh, he is, he's, yeah. He's, but, he's, he was, he was, and he's, he's great. But at the same time, that's a role that Nashie, I mean, we Mm-hmm. We're already kind of. I mean, he played. He played, he played a, in exorc- a priest in, yeah, exor- in yeah. exorcism. Yeah, and he and a, a guy who looks just like him plays a priest <laughs> or a monk in uh, Horror Express. Horror Express, yeah. So come on, damn it! Yeah. That, that, that's yeah. that's the first one that's really felt like a natural fit. And that's a time period when you could actually have seen them maybe going out and grabbing Nashi for that role. Yeah. I could actually see yeah. that somehow happening because he was doing because he was acting in a lot of different films for a lot of different people. Yeah, he was, he yeah. was super freaking yeah. busy. Yeah. So that just being another one mm-hmm. that he was in for that role, that would I could see that one happening. Yeah. Now taking the opposite tact, which I thought, okay, then what Baba films? The Bob, I mean, excuse me, what Nashi films that that Paul Nashi was in would 
he would what would I've liked it been interesting to have seen Baba direct right and I purposely didn't want to pick any of the films that Nashi himself directed right and also maybe didn't want to pick too many of the really highly highest respected or most loved of the films and so um and I, one I came up with, the first one I came up with, and this is, again, like a little bit before the time period, but it was Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. And here's the reason why. is because it's in 3D. I would love to see what Baba would do with It already 3D. has a lot of colors. Yeah, yeah, it's great colors. And knowing Baba's own tendency to the way he would set up landscapes by just putting objects in front of the camera and making them dimensional, what he would have done with the 3D image, I think would have been oh, fascinating. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. I think that he would have done some really interesting things with Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. And then I thought of Assignment Terror because of its comic booky um, kind of pop art sort of, you know, James Bondian sort of vibe to it. I thought of what he did with Danger Diabolic. I yeah. thought maybe seeing him, what he would do, applying that to Assignment Terror might have been a fun truth in Baba's hands. And, um, I also thought the hanging woman, because of the setting in the village, it takes place maybe a kind of kill baby kill vibe yeah, to that very, would have been cool. Very, yeah, I was about to say that would be, yeah, that'd be good. You're right. Yeah. That could be interesting to have seen mm-hmm. because he he'd already done he'd already done at least a couple of films that would mm-hmm. very easily uh, you could see a producer going, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. he actually yeah. knows how to handle this kind of yeah. this kind of setting. Yeah, these you know the the period, mm-hmm. the the idea we're going for, he can bring atmosphere to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that the hanging woman especially. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I also thought, uh, I, I, and I wouldn't want this film to change anymore as I love it so much, but when I thought of Blue Eyes, the Broken Doll, just the fact that it being a giallo, and since Baba, a lot of people kind of feel like he invented the giallo with Blood and Black Lace, what he would, what would he have done with that? You know, would have, might've been fun. Maybe so, but man. I know, Car- you don't want to mess what, with what, that. Yeah, Car- what Carlos Allred did with that is yeah. just so, so wonderful. Now, here's a, here's a better example of something that maybe he could have, maybe Baba could have elevated a little bit would be, uh, The Killer is One of the Thirteen. Oh. Taking something like that, he might have been able to spice yeah. that one up a little more with some of his Baba touches there. You're right there. That a little bit I mean, film. When, when you look at uh, when you look at what Baba did with uh, say five dolls for an August yeah, moon, yeah, and you you realize that the reason that movie is worth looking at these days is because you know mm-hmm. of what Baba brought to it. I mean, it was yeah. a it was a project that he came to at very last minute. Yeah, and just to keep him, you know, just just to. I mean, it almost seems like there are certain scenes set up just to keep mm-hmm. him interested in what the hell he's doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, wow, yeah, that would be that would be very interesting, and, yeah. and that's a that's a very minor Nashy role. Yeah, but yeah, true. It would have still put them yeah. in the in the in the mm-hmm. on, on the same set together, and yeah. it would have been interesting to see what happened there. Yeah, oh, good question, good question. Yeah, we appreciate that. It's fun to do these play these little mind games sometimes. So. It's a thought experiment. It is. It is one that doesn't make mm-hmm. you feel like a moron. <laughs> one that doesn't bring you. One that doesn't start with a concept that's automatically stupid. That's right. Thank you, Alex. This yeah. was a damn good yeah. question. This was really cool. All right, I mean, we may have to ask more people questions mm-hmm. of that type in the mm-hmm. future because that's uh, yeah. that's intriguing. I like that a whole lot. All right, well, uh, folks, remember that if you have a question you'd like to throw at us or if you've got some mindfuck game you want to throw at, <laughs> throw at the two of us to see if we see how we respond, the email account is uh, gmail at gmail... Oh, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Let me try this again. Mm-hmm. Nashicast at gmail.com. You can write us there. We'll be glad to hear from you. You never know which one of us will reply. That's right. It's, it's just whoever gets to the email first usually. Or we may not reply to all and make you think we've totally snubbed you uh, (laughs) until you suddenly hear us outing you on our, you know, on our podcast and reading your question and realize uh, we didn't forget you after in all. In some cases, mispronouncing your name. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, we are what we are want to do. This is, a, it's like yeah. a hobby, mispronouncing names. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to have to call it a hobby from now on because otherwise it just, it just it seems like we're, uh, yeah. 
we, we, we set ourselves a task at which we, we get no better at. So. <laughs> All right. Once again, folks, thank you very much for listening. Write us if you wish to. Uh, also, uh, remember, you can also drop us uh, a voicemail uh, at that same email address, nashicast at gmail.com, or you can visit us over on the Nashicast Facebook page where I make the occasional post of uh, photographs of Mr. Nashi, sometimes behind-the-scenes stuff, sometimes just notifications of when I've uh, fixed a link bro- mm. that's been broken over the years because the Internet is a, a mobile it's thing. It's a capricious mistress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to put it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, we want to thank you very much for uh, joining us again. I'm not sure when the next Nashi cast will be out. No. Probably uh, the next time they'll hear our voices will be, I guess, probably our Holiday Horrors episode in December will probably be the next show you and I will be doing, I think. More very, likely. very true. I think we've, uh, we've With done With Mr. Our, John Hudson. Yeah, I, I think we've done, uh, how many years in a row have we done this Holiday Horrors thing? I feel like this will be cat? maybe six, number six coming up, I Ooh, think, I can't, something like that. I can't remember, but that sounds like a, a, mm. a good probability so uh, you and I and Mr. Hudson will be talking about that. Uh, as soon as I can let folks know, uh, if you're on the Facebook page uh, for the Nashi cast, as soon as I am allowed to tell you about certain upcoming Nashi Blu-ray releases, hint, hint, mm-hmm. I'll let you know on the, on the Facebook page um, mm-hmm. because we won't have another show before the announcements of a couple of these, uh, which, would be, which should tell you they're going to happen before the end of the year, right? Mm-hmm. At least the announcements, right, right, right? See, I'm being very vague. <laughs> Super fucking vague. <laughs> so if you pay attention to the Facebook page, you'll find out about some of these things. It's been a very good year for Nashi film releases. Yes, it has. Ray, it's been excellent. We've gotten, uh, and the most recent is uh, the uh, the Fury of the Wolfman mm-hmm. Blu-ray. Yeah, we had Assignment Terror. Assignment Terror. Um, was uh, Mummy's Revenge, was that this year or last year? That was last year, wasn't it? That was, I think it was. I think that was last year. I think that was last year. And uh, just that, one, The Hanging Woman came out, didn't it? Uh, uh, if it's out already... It may not be out yet. It's out under a different title, or it's coming out under a different title. That's right, think, yeah. I don't think it's out quite yet. I don't yet. think it is either. Yeah. Um, it's on the way. Mm-hmm. It's on the way. And uh, like I say, there are uh, a couple more coming down the road, folks. Keep your mm-hmm. ears peeled. So thank you for listening to the show. And Can I do I have time for a shameless plug? Oh, you do have a shameless plug. You I do have an incredibly, away, incredibly shameless plug here. Yes, I uh, just want everybody to know that my band, The Exotic Ones, has released an EP, an eight-song EP, uh, entitled Mystery Machine. They probably know mystery where we got that title from. but uh, uh, You'd have to tell me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, right now, as of I speaking, as of recording this episode, it is uh, available exclusively on Bandcamp. Uh, in the months ahead, it will come out on uh, the other uh, typical streaming sites, you know, Amazon and Spotify and all that stuff. Uh, we hope to have the physical CD version uh, which we will be, uh, excuse me, we hope to have the actual CD out within a couple of months, uh, hopefully before the end of the year. Um, of course, obviously at this point we can't still sell them, can't sell them at shows until things get better. Uh, so, but we will be selling it on uh, Bandcamp. It's one of the great things about Bandcamp is you can sell the physical products on there as well. So anyway, uh, look, uh, if you want some rock and roll to get you through these sequestered times, uh, check out the Exotic Ones Mystery Machine on Bandcamp. Exactly. All right. Uh, that, well, you know that's that's you and Hudson, so that's it's, it's, yeah, it's right. It's, that's that's it's, podcasting power. That's right. It is. It is. And uh, um, yeah, we were very lucky to have gotten this thing ninety nine percent recorded before you know everything went south. You know before so before, <laughs> before COVID struck before we could no longer get in the studio with each other. You know so yeah, we were very happy to at least have something new to put out there. All right, uh, folks, check that out. Yep. Uh, I already have my copy because. I ordered it on Bandcamp. I pre-ordered that some bitch. <laughs> yep, no free copies, even for my even for my podcast no, buddy there. It's a, it's cutthroat, man. He's a some bitch. Anyway, <laughs> thank you guys again for listening. Yeah, and uh, happy Halloween. Yes, absolutely.
We will talk to you again soon. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. That was stupid. Was that scary, kids? Did it scary, kids? Yeah. Ooh, it's Count of Floyd. <laughs> if you let me take your heart, I will prove to you we will never be apart. If I'm part of you, open up your eyes now. Tell me what you see. It is no surprise now. What you see is me. Big and black the clouds may be. Time will pass away. If you put your trust in me, I'll make bright your day Look into these eyes now Tell me what you see Don't you realize now What you see is me Tell me what you see One more time How can I get through Can't you try to see that I'm Trying to get to you Open up your eyes now Tell me what you see It is no surprise now What you see is me Listen to me one more time How can I get through? Can't you try to see that I'm Trying to get to you Open up your eyes now Tell me what you see It is no surprise now What you see is me